0: What we really saw was the Russian actors, you know, focused very heavily on Eastern Europe, but also on NATO. I mean, one of the stats in our paper is we, you know, we saw a three hundred percent, you know, uptick in fishing against NATO countries around the conflict because suddenly all focus had gone on that area. To some degree the actual focus of Russia against say the US actually went down as the generalized as the general priorities changed. Um, Interesting, we actually also saw this from other actors, that we actually saw, you know, China take more interest in sort of Eastern Europe than they traditionally do, and other smaller threat actors, because this suddenly became the the place where everyone wanted intelligence, so this is actually where they sort of focus their efforts.
1: Another episode in our Threat Trends series here on Mandiant's Defenders Advantage podcast. I'm your host, Luke McNamara. My guest today is Shane Huntley, Senior Director of Google's Threat Analysis Group. Shane, great to have you here today. Great to be here. Well, excited about this, keeping it within the Google family uh, today, and want to dive into some of the work that your team has been doing here at Google. Um, And I guess what better place to start with than uh, maybe getting a sense of what the mission and and focus of TAG is. I think probably a lot of the listeners to this podcast uh, will be familiar with some of the work and research that you guys have done, but what do you guys focus on here at Google? Threat Analysis Group or TAG
0: goes back almost 13 years now, so when... Google was targeted itself by the the Chinese government back in late 2009, early 2010. It became really apparent that we needed to build up our ability to understand these threats, to counter these threats, and these government-backed threats weren't going away. So Google spun up this team out of the kind of response of Aurora to go on to take that mantle full time to understand threats. So our mission today is to understand and disrupt serious threats against Google and our users. And considering most people in the world online are a Google user in some ways, that really ends up being a very global mission. And we started off looking specifically at these government-backed threats, and that still is like a huge part of our work. We've also expanded into serious cybercrime, such as ransomware operators, and more recently into like information operations threat actors. We really build up this understanding of threat actors and then work with other teams internally, especially, to allow like the Google-wide response. So we can work directly with Gmail, with Android, with Chrome, and with everyone else to work out how to make sure that these actors can't operate on our platforms or against our users.
1: Yeah, And you have kind of, a, as you mentioned, a wide remit in terms of the types of threats you're looking at. Everyone's looking at ransomware these days, even if they they were wish they weren't. Uh, but that is, I guess, the reality of, of things. I think one of the things, in particular, when I think of some of the the work that I've read, you know, from your team, where you really helped contribute to a part of the cyber threat ecosystem that has maybe been understudied, is the space around commercial spyware vendors. There was some research that you guys put out in blog posts and uh, your your testimony last year as well around this. So for for folks that are less familiar with the the landscape around commercial spyware vendors what does that particular problem set look like what are the the sort of actors and the type of activity that occupies that space
0: yeah so when we started out here as i said before like we were starting looking at like major nation states such as like china coming gr- directly at us and then Overall, we started off looking at like, you know, major nations, China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, these efforts which had their own spy agencies, their own capabilities, these big players on the kind of geopolitical front building these capabilities to do the hacking. But over time, what we've seen is that more and more nations want this capability. They want to be able to play with the big players and have this cyber capability, but they're not really set up to be able to do this capability themselves. So what they do is they turn to vendors. And one of the kind of what we see is we see these commercial vendors um, often actually in sort of like, you know, Western democracies actually more than happy to provide this sort of like hacking and sort of destructive or other sort of like malicious capabilities to really the highest bidder. And these are these commercial spyware vendors. And, you know, NSO was one of the most famous ones, a company out of Israel. But we've talked around a, like a number of different of these vendors who are providing these capabilities, both exploits and malware. And they have some fairly serious capabilities that harm users. So, you know, we've taken a, a very sort of like aggressive stance against these, user, these kind of attackers because we do consider them attackers. You know, on a day-to-day basis, like many people are like, demonstrating that users around the world are being targeted by what is often repressive regimes and they're using this capability. So you could be a repressive dictator, and you want to kind of stymie democracy activists, you want to like hack journalists, you want to really like target civil society. And again and again, we're seeing these commercial spyware vendors happily selling this capability and this capability used against them. So that's why I focused like a, you know, a whole small sub team of my analysis team is actually focused on these commercial surveillance vendors, the exploits and the sort of hack for hire operators, because they are as big a threat to, or a bigger threat to like many users worldwide than the major sort of powers or the major
1: nations because they actually are allowing these other countries to step up. How have you seen the the landscape with these different players and the, the capabilities that they bring to bear? How have you seen that evolve and change over the years? Because I remember thinking back to to some of the earliest disclosures around groups in the space, the FinFisher, Fisher, the hacking team type uh, uh, players. You mentioned NSO Group now, and, and that's kind of, I think, one that's taken over a lot of the headlines. But what does the capability look like when these groups are, are active? It seems like there's a lot of mobile targeting. How have you just seen this entire space evolve? I guess is my question.
0: But I'd say more generally, we're always going to see this space evolve. Right. So as defenders get better, attackers get better. It's it's what kind of makes this world interesting in terms of the no one's ever going to fully win. So anybody who is using the offensive techniques of 2010 would not be very successful today. And anyone who's using the defensive techniques of 2010 would not be very successful today. So overall, year-on-year capability is always increasing. I think the challenge generally for us and everyone else is the where is that equilibrium point? So as, you know, this is Defenders Advantage podcast, right? If the As a defender, our goal is to sort of get defense ahead to push back the offense side to actually make that equilibrium point where the, offen- the offensive side is less successful. I would say that the, we are in a scary place at the moment with regards to some of this commercial capability. The commercial capability being provided is very comprehensive at times. There was this you know, published by Citizen Lab, but some great research by the Project Zero folk of this exploit forced entry. And this exploit was, you know, described by our Project Zero colleagues as the most sophisticated exploit they'd ever seen. And this was a zero click exploit. So you could send a message to Pretty much any iPhone user on the planet, and it would fully take over their phone. They'd be able to access the camera, the location, the you know encrypted messages, pretty much anything your phone could do, and your phone can do a lot of stuff. Was able to be obtained by somebody sending this like this message provided by NSO at the time. And this capability was clearly being provided, you know, not just as it was being sort of in their press releases saying only being used to target terrorists and criminals and all of those reasonable purposes, but again and again, you know the reporting, the evidence is showing that sort of these capabilities were being used against civil society, journalists, democracy activists, and you know when I testified in front of the House Intelligence Committee, I sat, behind, you know, beside a, a young woman who was like targeted in targeted in the U.S. because of her work, and this really is a, a great challenge. So I'd say the ecosystem. It's sort of growing because there's money into it, right? If you look at the, the purchase orders and the money that was going to FinFisher back in the day, the amount of money being spent and what these vendors are able to charge is increasing greatly. Um, the And that allows people to pull in more resources, they're able to hire more people, they're able to bring in sort of more exploit researchers. And one of the things I've talked about publicly and I'm quite passionate about is you know, we really need to think about that as a security community. We need to look at the incentives. We need to make sure that people are aware of the, you know, the work and the damage they're doing. And we need to set it up that, you know, we can't just have, you know, the best and brightest minds in the security industry, you know, feeding this capability directly to, you know, target people for great harms. Like, we we need to wake up. This isn't just a, a great technical problem. This is actually sort of a moral problem with real human implications for people
1: if you look back at to at some of those disclosures around hacking team and Finn fisher and, and who some of their customers were you'd see some you know western law enforcement entities but you'd see a lot of sort of emerging players that at the time and this, again this is several years ago people didn't think of as big sort of cyber actors or or contributors to this space and it seems like one big aspect of this activity and what's driving it is a sort of rise of the rest newer entrants into the offensive cyber space that seems to be fueling the demand around this so You know, you can imagine some of those are going to increasingly want to develop and build their own organic capability, but this seems to be something that allows them to kind of jumpstart that, and maybe especially for kind of internal targeting. But is this a kind of closely intertwined problem where, you know, the the names of the the providers may change over the years, they'll come and go, but the demand for this is such amongst a sort of rising entrance into this space that we shall see that for some some time? Absolutely. I think... like while there's a demand and it's able to be provided then
0: I think we will see this evolution right like everyone talks about this one company NSO but we've talked about you know Variston RCS Labs Kanduru. we've actually talked about a number of these vendors and we've also seen that there's significant movement of people right so you could outlaw a specific company of like NSO and then if the same people and all the same capability and everyone else perform the company I don't know (laughs) know, OSN and like just reverse the their letters or whatever then we actually haven't made a dent in the problem um where I this sounds a little bit pessimistic so far but where I actually am really optimistic is that we actually are seeing a broader engagement on this problem and we actually are seeing a lot of engagement from the government side as well and the regulation side and I think that has to be part of this as well right? So, you know, it's great to have teams like TAG and Project Zero and Mandiant all looking at the technical side and doing technical disruption on a exploit by exploit and malware by malware basis. But really, this is something we need to kind of look at also on the regulatory framework in terms of like, is it really okay for this company in Western Europe to be just, you know, directly enabling sort of kind of quite hostile states and repressive regimes to directly do this hacking activity? Is that actually an okay thing for these western companies to do and do, how do we actually you know regulate or you know create the incentives where that isn't isn't this is a kind of standard thing to do. So we have to come at this problem from a large number of different angles. And also so we are making some progress too, right? So the fact that we are finding more of these exploits, we are finding more of this malware, we're able to disrupt it, we're able to block it. The harder we make this for vendors, the harder we make it for them to use this capability indiscriminately, the more our users are protected. We never want this to be easy. We want this to be really hard. We want this to be really expensive. And we want it to, that want them have to think very carefully about choosing the customers and very carefully about how they use such capability if they are going to use it.
1: So to that point, if you had to look into your crystal ball as to how uh, the space will evolve and even maybe framing it a little bit broader than just the the spyware providers, but you have your hack for hire groups, uh, Dark Basin uh, being one that's been reported on uh, in recent years. You have obviously exploit vendors that kind of make up a piece of this marketplace when you see this kind of the space evolving do you think it's going to how do you think it's going to look like in the in the future do you think it's going to look similar to what we've seen in the past uh will we see more bifurcation will we see you know people looking to b- provide more turnkey solutions or is it going to fragment more where you'll have providers focusing on very you know, specific, discrete offerings and services?
0: I'd say my my hope is, and what I kind of optimistically predict is that I think more of this work is going to sort of like move into the shadows and move into the background and that it is going to be harder for them. So they're not going to be able to operate with as complete impunity and it is actually going to get more expensive, more targeted, and it's not going to be sort of as mainstream. And we're already seeing that, that, you know, the... The days of being able to just like, you know, operate and boast about how you're doing all this work and it's being conceived as totally fine as sort of disappearing. I do think there is real opportunity to win on the exploit side. Like we're doing some really strong efforts at the moment to really discover Zero Days in the Wild. And when we discover them in the wild, we put some real pressure on people saying, you know, you've got seven days to get a patch out or we're going to publish details about it. And this was really controversial when Google started doing this a number of years ago, but now it's become standard, right? So we can actually, you know, we find a, you know, iPhone exploit being used in the wild. We'll give Apple a seven day deadline to patch. And now they do like, they're actually able to turn this around patch. And then these patches are pushed out to everyone. And because we actually are moving faster and faster. So I do think these windows of vulnerability are going to, are going to slowly close. I am, you know, Quietly, also optimistic about the, you know, we can make some progress in actually writing secure software. So, all of this thread intel stuff we do is great, but like some of the moving to memory safe languages like Rust and better software design, software bill of materials, actually making more secure things by default, that actually also, if we do this right, will make this work a lot harder. And we will never have a purely secure society, but I think we can get a lot better. And I am seeing a real call to arms and a coal you know people
1: coalescing around this mission in an exciting way that's great to hear it's a you know bright ray of optimism in an otherwise you know sometimes uh more pessimistic landscape transitioning to i guess another area that uh you know i think like a lot of security researchers and analysts uh you've been focused on over the past year we're coming up on the one year anniversary of Russia's invasion into Ukraine. Uh, this has been a topic that we've covered on here in the past, but your team has a report coming out. This will be out actually when this episode is released and we'll link to it in the show notes and a report that, that Manny was was uh, able to contribute as well. But some of TAG's takeaways looking at the past year of Russian operations in Ukraine uh, and kind of surrounding it that. So I'm curious, you know, would you look back at, at the operations that we saw over the past year from some of the you know, well-known and less well-known Russian groups, particularly in that space, what are some of the hallmarks and takeaways for you? I'd say that the first
0: takeaway I'd have for everyone is that the, you know, the Russian activity against Ukraine well predates the invasion. So the, one of the kind of, kind of interesting and you know, scary parts of cyber is that there is the background conflict that is occurring much before there is the kinetic conflict, and it exists outside the kinetic conflict as well. So, you know, we've been tracking the, you know, various Russian groups for many years and seen their targeting shift in many different directions. And, you know, there were, you know, documented destructive attacks against Ukraine and Crimea in the years leading up to the invasion. But when we actually did see the invasion, there was, you know, significant uptakes of activity. And... Often it wasn't like new players getting involved. Most of it was actually shifting of resources. And that's actually generally what we see global, like the amount of like cyber capacity or cyber activity from a country doesn't change that much from sort of month to month, but like where they point to that capability does change. So what we really saw was the Russian actors, you know, focused very heavily on Eastern Europe, but also on NATO. I like think one of the stats in our paper is we, you know, we saw a three hundred percent, you know, uptick in fishing against NATO countries around the conflict because suddenly all focus had gone on that area. To some degree, the actual focus of Russia against, say, the US actually went down as the generalized as the general priorities changed. Um, interesting, we actually also saw this from other actors that we actually saw, you know. China take more interest in sort of Eastern Europe than they traditionally do, and other smaller threat actors because this suddenly became the the place where everyone wanted intelligence, so this is actually where they sort of focus their efforts in the report, which is like has a lot of great detail. you can also see details of the you know destructive attacks, you can see details of the information operations, but also how this actually disrupted and shifted the um uh, financially motivated hacking right so this actually caused like quite a kind of change in what was happening with regards to ransomware and some of these operators in different directions like one of the kind of Weirder ones actually is that you know, one of the major sort of cybercrime groups was sort of like half Ukrainian and half Russian, and they sort of split apart and had a great fracturing as their two nations went to war. That suddenly this actually disrupted the cybercrime landscape because of the co- and the cooperation between these sort of two halves of this cybercrime group.
1: Was there anything in particular that? Maybe you find uh, found surprising looking at the activity of last year. I mean, this has been something that people have written a lot of papers and spilled ink about about what actual true cyber warfare looks like, or you know, cyber operations in a time of warfare. And I think, as you noted in in your comments earlier, there's a limited amount of resources on all sides of the equation, and you know, some of these mis- uh, groups have destructive mandates and and missions as well as their espionage, and that limits how much they can do of one or the other. But any sort of thoughts around things that maybe now that we've kind of seen Russia's capabilities play out and evolve over a period of of a year in an actual conflict some takeaways there i think it's the most important thing i'd say that i i noticed and is
0: that you know there was a lot of before the conflict and you know general kind of discussion and theorizing about like what a major cyber war would look like and people had a like a huge number of different sort of like in some ways, fantastic scenarios that, you know, the next war would be like surgical strikes and it would be like fully integrated cyber capability. And the Russians would be able to like surgically take out exactly, exactly the right thing at the right time as part of their military operations. And that's something we really didn't see. And I think we didn't see that for a number of reasons. I do think that, you know, we have a great amount of vulnerability and it's actually really scary how much we depend on our critical infrastructure on computers, but that doesn't mean we should oversell how easy it is for a threat actor to have a specific destructive attack. So we saw a lot of things being thrown in general and, you know, some successes, but I'd be very careful and I think there's some good data here of like this shows we shouldn't totally overestimate our adversary and their ability to do things. Um, some of this could also be explained also that, you know, actually integrating cyber operations with kinetic operations is probably really hard, right? And, you know, the Russian, um, you know, war effort in general hasn't been the most coordinated at times. So the idea that they couldn't fully coordinate all of their cyber operations with their kinetic operations is maybe not surprising as well. Um, I think it's really good to go back, right? So what I've seen in like a lot of, you said a lot of ink's been spilled. There's a lot of people with predictions. There's also a lot of people afterwards who are trying to make their sort of predictions true regardless of what the data is. Um, I think this, this is an excellent case study. We shouldn't overmatch on it, but I think it's we really should take an open mind and really look at what worked, what didn't work, both on the offense side and the defense side and use that as lessons and try and avoid trying to fit our narrative or our pre-beliefs to this whole
1: system. That's an excellent point. And again, I would highly encourage people go check out that report. There's a lot of really good and interesting data and stats in it uh, around, again, the sort of anniversary of the the conflicts uh, beginning. Zooming maybe back out again and, and wrapping this up. You know, if you're looking in your crystal ball this year, or maybe just looking at things, that are interesting to track, uh, signals about how the threat landscape might evolve. Um, it could be on the criminal side with, with ransomware. It could be in, in the conflict in Ukraine with how and where they're using certain groups, uh, the Russians, that is, um, or it could be sort of the, you know, continued evolution of the commercial spyware market. What are some of the interesting trends you think for, for people that are following and playing along at home What's some things to kind of keep uh, their eyes on this year?
0: What always we seem to see is like a lot of copycat stuff as well, right? So I'm, I'd be looking at very much what came out of the Russian-Ukraine war. And so I'd be thinking of the like, who else is going to try and play this game? Like, what did people learn? What did attackers learn? And what capabilities are they going to try and build? So I think we should be looking at other places where there's conflict or potential conflict and really preparing to think about what that would look like and do doing the defense hopefully before anything happens to prepare for such a world. I think on the commercial spyware and exploits, you know at the moment what we're looking at we you know seem to be finding exploits at about the same rate. So we are finding you know uh, the number of exploits and the number of zero days in the wild sort of continues. I think we will you know continue to see periodic exploits. I think the patching the uh, is going to be super important. And we haven't, you know, had a major incident. We haven't talked about sort of like World 4J and the solar winds, but we actually are pretty much every year really seeing actors stretch and go into supply chain, go into sort of novel attacks. And, you know, if I was a defender at the moment, I'd really be predicting that, you know, sometime this year, something's going to hit you on the supply chain side. Like something, there's going to be another huge, big vulnerability like log4j. Like we haven't got to the point where these things are going away. So the best thing that, you know, the defender or the CISO can really do is think about, okay... If one, if there is this major vulnerability suddenly being used in this mass way, what is our ability to patch, catalog, know what we have and deal with it? Because I think these incidents are going to become more and more common as people learn from the previous examples
1: as well. Yeah, the asset inventory component of that, I mean, both with Log4j and SolarWinds, I mean, that was, I think, a big thing that every organization was potentially scrambling with is, do we have this, are we impacted, you know, how do we respond to it, so... I think that's a that's a pretty uh, probably safe assessment that we will see something similar to that. Hopefully, not around a holiday or a weekend when everyone's uh, ready to take off work. Twenty twenty four is a big year for elections worldwide. So on my
0: side, that this really starts another really big cycle of preparing for the like election security, and you know, even as the you know the primary cycle gets started earlier and earlier in sort of the US, that there really will be opportunities for threat actors here and so the preparation will be a a major focus for tag over the next 12
1: to 24 months excellent definitely something to keep an eye on i'm sure we'll see more activity from a a range of actors around that both on the the io and disinformation side and and the espionage as well but some excellent points and and things to kind of keep an eye on this year and we'll be interesting to see how it develops as always shane thanks for your your time today and uh take care thanks very much it's been great bye